one of the greatest mysteries in American history, the only case of air piracy to never be solved, and probably our most requested episode. That's right. Today we're going to explore the labyrinth of a tale that is the story of D.B. Cooper. Settle in, because this will be a long and bumpy ride. Welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another edition of Killing, Missing, Hidden. We just don't stop. We're blasting true crime and other weird stuff into your ears every single week. This is your buddy Brad, former criminal defense attorney, here to lead you through this week's case. And what are we covering this week? Well, the infamous plane hijacking by one D.B. Cooper, who was never caught and whose true identity has never been conclusively established. Like I said in the intro, this may be our most requested episode ever. Credit goes to listener Mike as being the first to request this, but he was far from the last. Now this is going to be a beast of an episode, so be prepared. When the FBI investigates a case for 49 years before finally tapping out, you know there's lots to cover. Before we jump into the deep, however, two quick announcements. I need to drain your wallet because my wife is tired of me draining ours to keep this podcast afloat. So I'm looking to fund this bad boy in two ways. First, we have a gift shop you can visit when the episode's over. It's located at killinmissinghidden.threadless.com. Killinmissinghidden.threadless.com. We've got lots of shirts. Coffee mugs, buttons, stickers, face masks, all sorts of junk. I will give one warning that the shirt sizes are a little smaller than you might expect, uh, particularly for the women's shirts. So you may want to upsize a bit. Alright, and the second and just as awesome way to help support us is by becoming a member of our Patreon, which will launch April 1st. Uh, Patreon, unfortunately, charges you for the month whenever you sign up, and I don't want to launch at the end of March and have somebody charge for the entirety of March and then turn right around and charge for April. So, April 1st. Uh, the Patreon will feature episodes that are different than what we do on here. So, I'm not diluting the Killing, Missing, Hidden experience. It will be things like, uh... Crimes were that are really just too dark to talk about on here because I do want to keep this semi-family friendly for a true crime murdering podcast. Uh, it also, you know, have stupid stories like Florida Man episodes. And uh, we're going to try to release at least two episodes of some sort per month through Patreon. And we're not going to charge a ton for it. I think we're going to do as little as $4 a month, which will get you access to most of it. So you can swap a Big Mac for some more Killing, Missing, Hidden if you want. Okay, but that's enough about me having to sell my soul to keep this show operational. Let's get into Mr. D.B. Cooper's little hijacking exploit. So on the afternoon of November 24th, 1971, 
A man going by the name of Dan Cooper purchased a ticket for Flight 305 of Northwest Orient Airlines, leaving Portland to arrive in Seattle. Cooper appeared to be an ordinary passenger by all accounts. He was wearing a dark business suit with a black tie and a white shirt, and he brought with him just a black attache case. He appeared to be in his mid-40s, somewhere just shy of six foot tall, and weighed around 175 pounds. Cooper boarded the Boeing 727-100 and took either seat 18C or 15D, depending on which source you review. Regardless, he was sitting near the rear of the passenger cabin. While awaiting takeoff, Cooper ordered a bourbon and 7-Up. The plane was maybe a third full when it departed Portland at approximately 2.50 p.m. local time. Once the plane reached cruising altitude, Cooper handed the nearby flight attendant a note. Thinking this was nothing more than the flirtatious offerings of a lonely businessman, as apparently was common in the 70s, the attendant merely dropped the note into her pocket without looking at it. The next time she passed by, Cooper leaned towards her and whispered that she may want to read the note because he had a bomb. So the attendant looked at the note, which instructed her to sit next to him which she did. She asked to see the bomb, and Cooper was gracious enough to open up his bag. She described seeing eight red cylinders that were connected to each other by wires. Cooper then asked her to pass along his demands to the pilot, and according to the note, he wanted $200,000 in $20 bills, and in today's money, that would be just shy of $1.3 million. He wanted the bills in non-sequential order. He asked for four parachutes, two primary chutes and two reserve chutes, and for there to be a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to allow the plane to refuel. When the attendant stood to deliver the instructions, Cooper requested back the note. When the pilot received Cooper's demands, he radioed Seattle, and the president of the airlines just immediately agreed to everything. He said, that's fine, we'll pay it, whatever. He didn't want the bad press. It took about two hours for the airline, local police, and the FBI to gather up the money, the parachutes, and to secure the area around the airport. Passengers were told there was a minor mechanical problem with the plane as they circled around the Seattle area, waiting for authorization to land, and apparently no one panicked or thought anything unusual was going on. The flight attendants all described Cooper to be very polite and calm during this period of time. He ordered a second drink and tried to tip the attendant. He also asked her if he needed to request food for the flight crew to be ready for them when they landed in Seattle. Now, the FBI spent the bulk of their time gathering money from local banks and taking pictures of each bill. Remember, they're collecting $20,000 in $20 bills, and they're taking a picture of every single one of them. I can only imagine how many low-ranking agents with cameras were busy snapping away trying to create this record. When the pilot was informed the local Air Force base was preparing parachutes, Cooper said, no, I don't want military chutes. I want civilian chutes with manually operated ripcords. So the police had to scurry around to find where they could get those. 
and contacted a local skydiving school who was willing to sell them to him. There were discussions about providing dummy shoots, but ultimately law enforcement was worried that Cooper was asking for four shoots so he could take a hostage with them. So they decided not to sabotage any of them because they didn't want to risk lives this way. At 5.24 p.m., Cooper was informed that his demands had been met and the plane was given authorization to land at 5.39 p.m. Cooper directed the flight attendants to close all the window shades on the plane, and he asked the pilot to park in an isolated area of the airport that was also well lit. The airline's operation manager approached the aircraft with a cash-filled knapsack and the four parachutes. A flight attendant collected the items and brought them on board via the aft stairs. Once everything was on board, Cooper ordered the passengers off, as well as several flight attendants. While the plane was refueling, Cooper met with the pilots and explained the flight plan he wanted them to follow. So, his desire was he wanted them to take a southeasternly course towards Mexico City. He wanted the aircraft to fly as slow as possible without stalling out, which would have been somewhere under 150 knots, and to fly no higher than 10,000 feet. Third, he wanted the landing gear to remain deployed and the wing flaps to be lowered 15 degrees. Fourth, he wanted the passenger cabin to remain unpressurized. And fifth, he wanted the aft staircase to remain open. Now, the co-pilot noted that if they followed Cooper's instructions explicitly, the plane would not be able to reach Mexico City without refueling. So they kind of debated the matter for a few minutes and agreed that the plane should stop in Reno, Nevada to refuel. Airline officials in the tower objected to leaving the aft stairs open, stating that the plane wouldn't be able to take off in that condition. Cooper insisted they were wrong, but agreed to close the stairs just for takeoff. FAA officials asked if they could talk to Cooper face-to-face before they left, but that request was summarily denied. The plane took back to the air at approximately 7.40 p.m. with Cooper, the two pilots, the flight engineer, and one flight attendant as the only people on board. Now, the Air Force sent two F-106 fighters to, allow, to follow the aircraft, but they had a real hard time doing so because the aircraft was flying so slowly. Cooper asked the one remaining flight attendant to wait in the cockpit with the other crew members as he put on his uh, parachutes and also asked that they keep the door closed. So at approximately 8 p.m. local time, The cockpit received a warning that the aft stairs had been lowered. The crew then felt a change in air pressure, suggesting the aft door was open. The crew asked via intercom if they could be of any assistance, but Cooper curtly refused their help. At 8.13 p.m., the plane's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, requiring the pilot to make corrections to return to level flight. The aircraft arrived at Reno around 10.15 p.m. with the stairs still lowered. Now, law enforcement quickly surrounded the aircraft and did an armed sweep, but confirmed that Cooper was absent from the plane. Now, for those who are curious, that knapsack full of money would have only added 21 pounds to the jump, and so it wasn't enough to create any hazards for somebody who was experienced in skydiving. 
Of course, the FBI went to work immediately, trying to gather what information they could on what would become known as Operation Norjack. They found 66 unidentified latent fingerprints about the plane. Cooper's black tie, a clip-on, and his tie clip were found kind of thrown haphazardly in the cabin near where he was sitting. DNA was recovered from the tie. Two of the parachutes were left behind. One of the two had the suspension lines cut. It's unclear whether Cooper did this or if they were provided to the police like this. Police, of course, spoke to everybody on the plane and developed a composite sketch of what Cooper may look like. The FBI profilers kind of examined the situation and described Cooper as likely being a former member of the military who is extremely familiar with aircraft as well as the, as well as the northwestern part of the United States. However, they believed he was not a paratrooper or otherwise familiar with parachutes as the jump he intended to make was under extremely dangerous conditions. And it turned out the reserve chute was actually a training parachute and had been sewn shut. That meant if his main chute didn't work or had a problem, Cooper effectively had no reserve chute. Now, agents immediately began questioning everybody they could think of in the area who could possibly have pulled this off. They began with the initial list that contained over 800 names, but they eventually managed to narrow it down to two dozen. One of the first persons of interest was a man named D.B. Cooper, who lived in Oregon, who had a minor criminal record. He, of course, was one of the first to be interviewed and also one of the first suspects to be eliminated. But a local newspaper reporter got confused and identified the hijacker's name as D.B. Cooper rather than Dan Cooper. This error was republished and republished and republished again so that now we will forever know the hijacker by the wrong name or at least the wrong pseudonym. One prime suspect was Richard Floyd McCoy, who was arrested for attempting a similar stunt a few months later. But the flight attendants insisted McCoy was not the man who identified himself as Cooper. McCoy was later killed after managing to escape from prison with a wooden gun and then got into a shootout with law enforcement during his escape. One big problem that the FBI faced was that it was impossible to determine exactly where Cooper was likely to have landed when he left the plane. Even small changes in, like, atmospheric conditions, altitude, how long Cooper waited before he pulled the ripcord caused the proposed search area to vary wildly. And, of course, neither Air Force pilot saw Cooper jump or the parachute open but their visibility was extremely limited due to the thick cloud cover and it being at night. Nothing appeared on radar. Now, the FBI was confident that Cooper jumped at 8.13 based on the reaction of the plane and the subsequent tests to recreate the event. At that moment in time, the plane was passing through a heavy rainstorm near the Lewis River in southwestern Washington. So the FBI started there. 
searching the Lewis River area, and expanded out. Agents and other search personnel searched this area by foot, knocked on every door in the area, explored every barn, ran patrol boats along the river, um, explored other bodies of water, and conducted an aerial search following the flight path of the hijacked plane. But not one bit of evidence was found. During this time, a series of letters was sent to various newspapers claiming to be from D.B. Cooper. Most were written off as just hoax or people messing with the police. But there was one letter that got their attention. It was sent to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the Seattle Times. And this was on December 11, 1971. FBI agents, when they learned of this letter, immediately seized all copies of it before it could be made public. This letter claims, apparently, that Cooper wore putty makeup and had a toupee to hide his true appearance, and that police would never catch him because of this. Now, oddly, in the lower left corner of this letter was written just a, what appeared to be a random series of numbers. 71, 71, 71, 6, 3, 4. After the spring thaw, remember this jump, occurred around November, another extensive search was conducted. This time you had 200 Army personnel, additional Air Force personnel, uh, even this local marine salvage firm offered a submarine used to search the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. This search was conducted for 18 straight days in March, and then another 18 days in April. But again... Nothing from Cooper was ever found. And an interesting side note, the search actually did recover some skeletal remains. They were identified as being Barbara Ann Derry, a teenage girl who had been abducted and killed several weeks before these spring searches took place. So, if nothing else, we've got a bit of a silver lining here. The FBI also took advantage of the extensive photographing they did and distributed the list of every serial number on every bill that had been given to Cooper to every major bank and casino and any other business that typically dealt with large cash transactions. The airline offered a reward of 15% of any money recovered. The serial numbers were eventually made public and that, of course, caused some scammers to create counterfeit bills to try to swindle a reward out of the airline. Now, two men actually pulled off a bit of a scam when they were able to swindle $30,000 out of Newsweek magazine in exchange for an exclusive interview with the man they claimed to be the real Cooper. Uh, the Oregon Journal and the Post-Intelligencer newspapers also offered rewards for the first person to provide the FBI with just one bill that had a matching serial number. These rewards were eventually pulled in Thanksgiving of 1974 after no one had been able to produce such a bill. That's a long time for that reward to sit out there with nobody claiming it. Now let's fast forward to February of 1980. A family goes camping in this area, and the son, digging a hole, found a decaying stack of bills 
buried along the Columbia River north of Portland, Oregon. That totaled around $5,800 in $20 bills. When the FBI examined the fine, the serial numbers on the bills matched those given to Cooper. Now, this location was many miles away from when search efforts began, so the FBI decided a new search was in order, and they spread out all over Oregon. However, the search was halted after only three months due to the nearby eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980. For what it's worth, the boy who found the money received a $2,700 reward. That package of bills was the only evidence the FBI ever found on Cooper or the money. In 2016, the FBI formally closed the case, and it remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in history. So now we discuss the big questions. Who was this D.B. Cooper character, and what happened to him? The FBI, with all of its manpower and resources tried for decades to answer these two questions. Now little old Brad here, who operates as an independent podcaster whenever he has free time, and with no budget is going to try his hand at it. So what happened seems to be a, a tiny bit easier to answer, or at least wildly speculate on. The most popular theory is Cooper didn't survive the jump. Experts have opined that if this was his first jump, he almost certainly would have died. But they admit that if he had practiced jumping into this terrain before, there's a decent chance he could have made it to the ground safely. Note I say decent chance. Now, of course, just making it to the ground would not have guaranteed any sort of survival. Cooper was wearing only a suit and a trench coat. It was a chilly night that was kind of exasperated by the heavy rainfall. With there being lots of heavy cloud cover, Cooper would not have had an easy time making his way out of the forest and back into civilization. It's entirely possible he could have succumbed to exposure. Maybe he took a bad step and broke his leg in the middle of these woods, leaving him virtually helpless. And of course, it's always possible that a bear wanted to give him a nice little hug. Remember, the FBI considered Cooper to be inexperienced at skydiving based on his willingness to jump in such bad weather and the fact that he didn't notice he took a dummy parachute as his reserve. People much more knowledgeable than me have, brought, have bought into this theory and noted that Cooper's insistence on using a civilian parachute meant he lacked any meaningful control of his descent, whereas a military chute would have offered much more control and maneuverability. So there's a big chunk of folks out there who think he jumped out into this heavy rainstorm and into a dense and mountainous forest and allowed Mother Nature to decide where he's going to land, which doesn't really sound so smart. There's also some concern over whether a non-military-grade parachute could have withstood the force exerted by the exit speed of the plane. However, there are some reports that he refused instructions on how to use a parachute that the attendant saw him putting on the parachutes as she entered the cockpit, and she was of the opinion that he seemed to know what he was doing. And because he used a civilian parachute, he would have been much less detectable to aircraft once it was deployed. Obviously, Cooper not surviving neatly explains why the money never entered into circulation. If Cooper had lived, 
He would have had to be a strong man to sit on all that money for so many years. Or he had to have a good plan to get it into a form that he could use freely as currency. You know, something like Bitcoin before he started making up all these virtual currencies. But if he didn't survive, then how do we explain how the money got buried near the Columbia River? Now that $5,800 that was found is about $37,000 today's money. Nothing huge, but also nothing to sneeze at, right? So ask yourself, if you had just managed to steal essentially $1.3 million, would you take the time to bury $37,000 worth of it? I think most people would be focused more on getting the heck out of those woods than doing any sort of planning like that. This kind of suggests to me that maybe this buried money is an indication that Cooper died and the money bag burst open. So these stacks of $20 bills get thrown across the area and someone who happens to be hiking or hunting in that area finds some of these stacks and decides to make a little stash Keep it hidden from the wife and kids, you know, fuel alcohol or gambling addiction. But this theory doesn't work. First of all, why take the time and trouble of going to bury the money when you're not going to spend a dime of it? Also, a dead Cooper attached to a parachute seems like something that would be easy to find, at least so far as dense forest searches go. And since the parachute came from a skydiving school, I'm going to assume, rightly or wrongly, that it was probably colored in a manner so it would be easy to track, so something, just in case something went wrong on a student's jump. I don't think it'd be military camo colored. Another oddity we haven't discussed is that the stacks of bills were bound by rubber bands. Well, of course, that's not odd. But how long can a rubber band survive in the elements? The money near the Columbia River was uncovered nine years after Cooper jumped. Nine years. I mean, from my experience, a rubber band can't survive 90 days in an office environment. And people actually did a study on this and learned they used different size rubber bands, different companies' rubber bands, placed them in different conditions in nature, and... The best case scenario is that they last 12 months. So either the bank had some sort of special vibranium-infused rubber band straight from Marvel Comics, or the money was buried less than a year before it was found. Huh? How can that be? So where are we with this most basic question? I, I have no idea. I have no freaking idea. Our most requested episode, and I instantly fail all our listeners. You can take either side on whether Cooper survived his jump and make a convincing argument, but I don't know how to make an argument that I find to be compelling with the evidence we have available. For the sake of this podcast episode, we'll assume that Cooper lived, but that's not a popular opinion from folks who have stayed the case. If you search hard enough, you'll find dozens of potential suspects for this crime. And in the interest of time, because this is going to be a long one anyway, we're only going to hit on the ones that seem the most probable or the most entertaining. So we'll start with Kenneth Peter Christensen. He passed away in 1994, but in 2003 his brother, 
after watching a documentary on this case, became convinced that Kenneth was D.B. Cooper. His argument was that Kenneth enlisted in the Army and was trained as a paratrooper. After leaving the Army in 1954, he joined Northwest Orient as a mechanic in the South Pacific before eventually being promoted and transferred to Seattle. When Kenneth died, his family discovered that he had $200,000 in a bank account, a valuable stamp collection, and a collection of gold coins, all of which the family was totally unaware of. Allegedly, Kenneth told his brother shortly before he died that he had a big secret, but he couldn't share it. Kenneth also, for some reason, kept a scrapbook concerning all things related to Northwest Orient, but the scrapbook ended shortly before the hijacking occurred. It just was like this abrupt ending. Now, with all that, Kenneth was shorter and slimmer than how Cooper was described, and his wealth could be traced back to real estate deals Kenneth had made over the years prior to his death that his family wasn't aware of. Next up on our lineup here is Lynn Doyle Cooper, a popular figure in this case. His niece, Marla Cooper, made a claim that Lynn, a.k.a. L.D. Cooper, is the real D.B. Cooper. L.D. was an Army veteran who grew up in Sisters, Oregon. Marla insists that on Thanksgiving Day 1971, which would have been the day after the hijacking, L.D. showed up to Thanksgiving dinner, but as a bloodied and bruised mess. He told his family he had been in a car accident. But Marla claims she eavesdropped on a conversation with L.D. that he was having with another family member that night. And L.D. allegedly said, quote, we did it, our money problems are over, unquote. Now, Marla was only eight when the hijacking occurred. And L.D. was allegedly in the woods the day before turkey hunting. However, the FBI has said L.D.'s DNA did not match the DNA recovered from D.B.'s tie. So there's a good chance we can eliminate him as a suspect. Joseph S. Lackich isn't as popular a name as some of the others on the list, but there is some compelling evidence pointing his way. He died in 2017 at the age of 95. He was a career military man who later worked as a production supervisor at Nashville Electronics. So why would he be interested in hijacking a plane? Well, it just so happens that his daughter was killed in a small plane hijacking just a month before this hijacking occurred, and Lackich was very upset, even angry, at how the FBI handled the case. And his work at this electronics company is noteworthy because, what we didn't discuss previously, is that the FBI found 100,000 particles of rare earth elements on Cooper's tie many of which would be found and used at an electronics production company. But that's as far as we get with that suspect. Okay, next we have Sheridan Peterson. And he looks like an ideal suspect on paper. I think a lot of FBI agents found this one to be the guy. He served in the Marine Corps during World War II and was later employed as a technical editor at Boeing. He was also a bit of a civil rights activist, which would have made him an enemy of the government at this time. While at Boeing, 
He founded the Boeing Employees Skydiving Club. And the best evidence to some people's minds is that Peterson made a jump similar to what Cooper did for a Boeing promotional stunt. He jumped out of a plane in a dark business suit while holding a 50-pound bag of flour between his legs, which streamed behind him as he fell. It gave, you know, that smoky effect. He also loved the media attention that came with him being a suspect, and he played it up whenever he could. His alibi was that he was in Nepal when the hijacking occurred, helping raise two small children in a mud hut. But as crazy as this sounds, this was just a slice of his otherwise fascinating life. He lived in Saudi Arabia, Iran, China, Papua New Guinea, Japan, and the Philippines at different points in his life. Even the FBI agent who interviewed him said he was the most fascinating person she had ever met. After the Vietnam War, he was appointed as a refugee advisor for certain South Vietnamese, but was so passionate in his advocating for the refugees, the U.S. ambassador to Vietnam asked him to resign and leave the country immediately. So it's clear he had some fire in his belly, right? He also had in his mind apparently a clear view of what's right and what's wrong, and he was a skilled skydiver who happened to love the attention of being a suspect in this case. Peterson passed away in January of this year at the age of 94. Now, one group is championing Robert Rackstraw as the real D.B. Cooper. Documentary filmmaker Thomas Colbert has led a 50 I'm sorry, a 40-member team dedicated to learning the true identity of Cooper for nearly 10 years. Colbert has landed on conman and former paratrooper Rackstraw as the real Cooper, based in large part on the December 11th letter we discussed earlier. Remember I had those random numbers in the bottom corner of the page? Well, a member of Colbert's team said those are not random numbers. Those were a code, and it was a code that was broken by this man who was a former member of the Army, I'm sorry, the Army's security agency, which was the military's elite signals intelligence outfit. This code, Robert's team claims, relates to Rackstraw's Vietnam military units, the 371st Radio Research Unit, and the 11th General Support Company. All right, now though Rackstraw looks nothing like the composite drawing of Cooper, the use of putty in a toupee, if true, would of course diminish the value of that composite drawing significantly. And Rackstraw is another suspect who just refuses to deny that he's Cooper, often saying when asked that if that's what people want to believe, so be it. Rackstraw has even been working with Colbert's team and has said, quote, they're paying me to tell the story they want to hear, unquote. Rackstraw's also not the most honest character in the world. He had been kicked out of the military. He was arrested in Iran on possession of explosives. And he attempted to fake his own death by allegedly crashing a plane into the ocean. Uh, Because of this, people are a little concerned that Colbert may have become too focused on Rackstraw and is now making the facts fit his theory 
rather than developing his theory around the facts. Indeed, when the flight attendants looked at a picture of Rackstraw, they said that's not the man they saw on the plane. And a member of Colbert's crew responded by speculating that they had lost their memories due to post-traumatic stress disorder. Rackstraw passed away in July of 2019. Up next, we'll talk about Walter Recca. Recca died in 2014, but not before telling his close friend, Carl Lauren, about the hijacking and how he pulled it off. Lauren has over three hours of recorded phone calls in between the two discussing the hijacking. Lauren also has an affidavit from Recca confessing to the crime and giving Lauren permission to share the story after Recca's death. Rika's story is further supported by the statements of a dump truck driver who supposedly ran into Rika the night of the hijacking. Apparently, this driver ran into Rika at a diner, where he described Rika as looking like a drowned rat. He agreed to give a friend of Rika's directions to the diner over in the phone, and in exchange, Rika paid his bill. A forensic linguist reviewed the documents Lauren has and reviewed the files the FBI has made public and found no evidence that would eliminate Rika as a suspect and found the statement of the dump truck driver to be virtually identical to the ones Rika made before his death. A filmmaker also did his own research and claims to be 100% convinced that Rika was D.B. Cooper. One final suspect, and this is the best story of them all, in my opinion. Maybe not the most believable, but it's going to be the one we all want to believe. This suspect is Barbara Dayton, a woman who claimed to have been Cooper to get back at the FAA and the airline industry for enacting insurmountable rules and conditions to keep her from becoming an airline pilot. Barbara had joined the Merchant Marines during World War II after her vision disqualified her from being an Army pilot. She also considered herself to be an adventurer. She had spent time roaming America with the Hells Angels, tried her hand as a gold miner, developed a love for skydiving, took flying lessons, and was known both as a proficient machinist and explosive expert. Barbara never spent the money she stole. She performed this crime merely because she liked living on the edge of life, according to her friends Pat and Ron Foreman. The Foremans noted Barbara was also very defensive when any discussion of Cooper came up and just frankly didn't like to discuss the matter at all. After a few years, she eventually confessed to the Foremans that she was D.B. Cooper and had disguised herself to look like a man. An unnamed accomplice had helped her uh, during the jump by illuminating a landing area, and she stashed her money and the suit and wig she wore in an irrigation cistern. Barbara later recanted her confession, which was a bit convenient because she was under the impression the statute of limitations had expired for this crime, but because of some legal maneuvering, the FBI was able to keep the case open. Barbara died at the age of 76 in 2002. Now, I know most of y'all are listening to this and rolling your eyes. We all know the Army wouldn't allow a woman to serve in any capacity back in the 1940s, much less a pilot. So, how can we believe this story? Well, Barbara 
Barbara wasn't always Barbara. She was born Bobby Dayton and allegedly received the first gender reassignment surgery in Washington state history. She lived the first third of her life as a man until she finally found a hospital willing to perform the surgery. Having spent over 20 years as a man helped her with her attempt to disguise herself as a man when it came time to perform the crime. It certainly would be easy to hide from the cops when they're looking for a man and you're a woman. Again, though, Barbara recanted, and she was too short to be to match the description of Cooper. She also had the wrong colored eyes based on the description the FBI had. So even after the foremans came out with the story, the FBI never took the alleged confession seriously. But dang it, wouldn't that just be one of the best endings to a true crime story, if it were true? All right, we'll stop going through suspects here. Seven is more than enough for one episode. If you want to read more about this case, there are tons of links in my show notes that will take you to many, many other potential D.B. Coopers. From my perspective, this case is maddening. There are so many suspects to dig through. And that's if you're willing to accept that Cooper survived the jump. If I were a betting man, I'd put my money down on Cooper surviving the jump but not escaping the forest. That would have given him time to bury or hide the parachute and start hiking towards civilization. It seems undisputed that Cooper jumped in dress shoes. Unless he had some boots hidden in his bomb bag, but that's just speculation. I can't imagine trying to hike in that sort of terrain, in the dark, in dress shoes, during a heavy rainstorm. I would expect lots of slippage, followed by lots of frustration, and eventually a bad step that led to a broken leg, or a serious fall, maybe into a river or lake. It seems clear to me that investigators were essentially guessing at where Cooper would have landed. So I fully believe Cooper could have died in the woods without search parties getting within 10 miles of his body. And I'm not pooping on the FBI here. They were just trying to perform an impossible calculation. And this would have given predators and scavengers plenty of time to, for lack of a better term, dispose of the body. But having said all this, I know my theory is 100% wrong because it in no way accounts for the buried money, and I don't know how to account for that. I mean, unless you want to believe that this kid who found it was really Cooper, it doesn't make sense. And I doubt that many folks would, you know, confuse a child for a middle-aged man. The whole buried money thing just screws with my mind because it doesn't seem possible. So, I leave it to you, dear listener. If you have a theory that works with these facts, I would love, love to hear it. Please send it to me. And if it's good enough, I'll even send out rewards of some sort. If we want to assume Cooper survived the fall, and I have to pick the best possible suspect from the lineup we discussed, I'll throw my money down on Peterson. I think he had the parachuting skills to pull this off and was fiery enough in his beliefs that he could have done all this to support some sort of cause, be that building schools overseas or funding some sort of revolutionary army. 
That would account for the currency getting out of the country where the FBI wouldn't be able to track it and, in his mind, doing something good with the money, all while sticking it to the man. This dude was just different enough that I could buy the story. I just wish he was still living, if it was him, to explain that dang buried money. That fact is going to haunt me for the rest of my days. Why did it still have freaking rubber bands on it after nine years? It's, it, ah, ugh, arg. Okay, we well, all's demands for this episode have thrown me into a fit. I hope you're all happy. I'm, I'm gonna drink something and lie down. But before I'll do, I'll, I don't want to forget to do our palate cleanser. So here we go. What lives at the bottom of the ocean and twitches? What lives at the bottom of the ocean and twitches? A nervous wreck. Yes, outstanding. That's one of those rare jokes that would qualify both as a kid's joke and a dad joke, I believe. So, Mr. Eli, well done. Okay, that's all from me. I'm tired of talking. Thank you to Mike and the 700 others of you who requested this episode. I hope it was up to your expectations. If you've got a better theory, please send it to me. Like, seriously. Everyone, have a great week. Buy yourself something nice, like some donuts or a new car. Make someone smile today. And just try to be a good person. Shine your light on this world, you crazy sunshines. Brad, out. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.